You are listening to episode 45. This episode is brought to you by my new course, How to Dominate LinkedIn with Your Personal Brand. Do you feel like when you're on the LinkedIn platform, you're not really sure how to actually navigate it? Does it feel clunky or confusing? And do you have all these connections, but you're not sure how to really leverage those connections and how to really show up virtually in presenting your personal brand? Well, that is what this course is about because since September, I've gone from 1,500 connections to about 8,000 connections on LinkedIn. Not only that, I've gotten clients through my content and people have actually reached out to me to speak for virtual speaking engagements. So if this is something that you would really like to capitalize on and take advantage of and learn about, then this course is definitely for you. And you can learn about it more uh, in my show notes and I will have the link to the waitlist just for you. And now on with the show. On today's episode, I get to interview a special local guest. This is an individual that actually went to the same high school as me, but at a different time. And his name is Mark Blaine. He is the CEO and founder of Step One Ministries. Mark Blaine grew up in Saskatoon, Saskatchewan, and he was highly competitive in soccer. He even got to go to numerous national tournaments. But around the age of 14, he found himself getting caught up in using drugs and alcohol in order to cover his pain. And that really became his coping mechanism and struggle all the way through into his 20s. Although he was very successful professionally, that was still a very huge struggle and a huge part of his life. And when he hit rock bottom and was desperate for change, he discovered a new life in Christ. And that was a bit of a change and trajectory for him. And then from there, Step One Ministries was birthed. So I'm really looking forward to getting to share his story today on today's podcast. And we also talk about some of the practical applications of how to even start a nonprofit, leadership and teamwork and even connecting with brands and sponsorships and more. You will not want to miss today's episode. Welcome to the Okiki Podcast, where we make inspirational people known. Brought to you by your host, Fian O'Brien. Welcome everyone to the Okiki podcast and today I have a special guest. His name is Mark Blaine and he is actually the CEO and founder of Step One Ministries where you find courage in taking the first step. So a bit of his background is that he grew up playing competitive soccer. He went on a lot of national tournaments and 
around 14 is really when he began to discover drugs and alcohol in order to cover some of his pain. And uh, this kind of played out throughout his life. And now that he's experienced change through his newfound faith in Christ and, and hard work and mentorship, he actually wants to create opportunities for others to find the same freedom. So we're going to learn more about Step One Ministries and his mission of helping people out of substance use as well. So thank you so much for being on the podcast today. Thank you very much, Finn. I really appreciate that. And I appreciate you taking some time to have me on your podcast. And I, I love the work that you're doing at uh, Okiko Consulting. It's really, really amazing. <laughs> Thanks so much. So I guess the first question is, can you tell us a bit about your journey? Because I think a lot of people may have certain, of course, stereotypes in this area of like, how does someone find themselves in that situation? What is their background? So really humanizing this story of yours, please tell us again, a little bit more about your background, more than I got to tell the audience. And what were some of your dreams and aspirations? And yeah, just a bit of your journey. Yeah, absolutely. I think going through school, a lot of the problem was that I was ADHD. So I was always hyperactive. I was always acting up. I was always acting out. And it wasn't necessarily something as a child that I could have the maturity to rein myself in and discipline myself. And I got a lot of negative yelling from teachers and a lot of trouble at home. And to a child, you know, sometimes that communicates that you're not worthy of love, you know, that you're not worthy of belonging. And I think I internalized a lot of that pain where I always had to perform to get affirmation. I always had to do in order to be good enough. And it felt that no matter how hard I tried, I always fell short. And that started to become something that weighed on me a lot going into my teens and going into high school. Yeah, that's really interesting. So it's funny how something like that doesn't seem related is related. Like you're saying, there's that root of trying to perform, trying to prove yourself, trying to measure up. And, and often it's the root of things that can lead to other things. So uh, again, um, you actually said in your bio that then you kind of ran into the situation I guess fairly young. Again, I think the average age for that is around 16, where, where people actually discover some of those things. So how, how did that happen for you? Was that, uh, if you don't mind sharing, was that just through friends? Was that just through, where did that journey begin? And how did that kind of interrupt what you were originally trying to do? Yeah, absolutely. Well, I remember the first time that I, I drank alcohol, I was in the summer going into grade nine and me and my friends were at the park and I got 10, they were called cold shots at the time. So it's like 10 beers and uh, a gram of marijuana. It was the first time I, you know, really got like blacked out uh, from drinking and drugs. And I was, you know, immediately, immediately violent, you know, like I immediately fell in love. Uh, with the feeling of being intoxicated. I felt like very powerful. I felt that, you know, the things that were going around in my life, they weren't an issue anymore when I was drinking or when I was on drugs. And it made life sort of simple because it just became about being loaded. It came about being high. And as long as I was high or loaded, then I didn't have to, you know, really think about anything else. I didn't have to worry about anything else. You know, so that's kind of where it first started for me going into grade nine. Yeah. Right. And so were you, you, you discovered that this really kind of helped and you find something else to think about other than what you were dealing with. Were you surprised by 
how quickly you gravitated towards it? And were you also, what unexpected places did you find that that took you once you started that journey as well? Yeah, well, at, at the time, I just didn't have the self-awareness to realize the path that I was going on and how quickly that it was going to spiral out of control. You know, at first it seemed like, oh, you know, it's not a big deal. It's just one night and it felt really good. It's going to be fine. Um, you know, I never thought of it really as a problem until probably when I started drinking at, at lunch. So I started drinking at lunch at school in grade nine. And I got really, really intoxicated because I couldn't stop drinking. Uh, a couple of friends that I was with, they said, oh, no, we'll just take a couple. So I drank the rest of the water bottle and it was a bunch of mixed mixed liquor. And I got to class and, you know, I was very, very intoxicated and I got kicked out of the class. And I remember, you know, my dad picking me up from the school and, you know, I was crying. I was in tears because I got, I had got caught and I was scared and didn't really know what was going to happen. And yeah, that was a really, you know, a tough experience. And the way that it was handled, I still didn't necessarily get to look at like the root of the problem. I didn't really understand like that this was coming out of like past pain and past trauma. And I, I really just thought, okay, well, I just got to buckle down and, you know, use willpower to stop, but it didn't, it didn't happen. Right. So I continued spiraling, um, you know, after that incident and it really strained the relationship at home as well, because I, you know, I now understand that that was more or less a cry for help. You know, I was looking for, for some belonging. I was looking for acceptance. I was looking for love in all of the wrong places. And I was starting to associate uh, with other people who were drinking and doing drugs because that was the, the social circle that I fit into. Cause that's what I was doing all of the time. Um, but there, there's a lot of artificial connection. You know, we didn't really have that depth in our relationship or our friendships. It was just based off the common bond of drinking and drugs. And if you took that out of the equation, then we wouldn't even have been, you know, hanging out at all. So it was pretty, pretty, pretty challenging. And then I ended up really getting in heavy into marijuana. So that's when I started smoking weed, you know, three, four times a day. It was, you know, I'd wake up right in the morning, I'd smoke weed, then I'd skip school at, you know, I'd skip out of school at lunch and I'd just go smoke weed. And then after school, then before bed, really didn't talk to my parents at all in that season. I think it was probably four or five months uh, where I would just hide, hide different weed and paraphernalia and stuff around the house. And it was really all I did. Uh, I was just smoke weed. Yeah, it was really a sad existence. That's for sure. I think it's really interesting to hear your perspective, because I believe we went to the same high school. And I know what I understood is, <laughs> I think the teachers and parents were a little bit lost when they had to, you know, interact with uh, teens they felt were in that situation. And I think it's really easy from an outside perspective to look at it as these teens are just acting up or looking for trouble. And given, I'm sure some of them were to some extent but there's also like a whole other side to it like you're saying like what are the underlying issues and it really challenges that point of like when I was at um, the high school we went to it was like if you acted up like that you basically got kicked out or they transferred you to another high school that seemed to be like the easier solution but now I'm curious if there was ever a thought of the counseling portion or can we talk to this guy with the school counselor? I don't know if that was ever something that was offered to you, but it does make me think of like the holistic picture of the individual going through that process because you it, it sounds like you're you are so young at that time in your life to really be so reliant, it seems, or that it's become such at that point in time, it became such a part of what you did. So I know you could correct me if I'm wrong, if there was outreach at that point, but did you feel like there were a lot of resources for you at the time when all of this began? Yes and no. 
in the sense that people were wanting to help me. People were wanting to support me. So there was people that cared about me and they weren't necessarily equipped um, at the home to deal with someone in my situation who was, you know, very active in addiction, you know, had behavioral problems, undiagnosed mental health problems. And then the school counselor was a real blessing in my life. You know, he was there for me. He supported me. But even then, he was limited in the sense that I didn't have the self-awareness to be able to say, hey, listen, like this is coming out of, you know, this lack of, you know, feeling of love and this lack of feeling of acceptance and feeling like I'm not good enough. And I don't know what to do or how to process that, right? Like my brain was just like, hey, when I smoke weed, I'm, I'm totally content and, you know, I don't really need anything or I don't want anything. I'm numb and like, I'm okay with that, you know? And that was, that was as far as the brain of the 14 year old, 15 year old Mark really thought about it. Right. And didn't re recognize that, that trajectory. Uh, but as things continued to sort of spiral, um, you know, I ended up really having tension at home and running away from home. Uh, so I ended up about three months, you know, couch surfing and I was like slept on the park, you know, I was, you know, getting into like small, small kind of crime just to fund my drug addiction, you know, just sort of stuff like that. And it was really sort of like, looking back, I don't understand how like my brain could have been so gone in the sense that, hey, I don't care. I don't care if I'm not going to be at home. I don't care if I'm not with my family. I don't care if I'm not going to school as long as I'm smoking weed, you know, like as long as I'm doing drugs and drinking, like what's the big deal, right? Like everyone just leave me alone. I remember even saying, well, get off my back, right? And it's just like, so I was so gone. And, you know, after those three months that I'd run away from home, when I came home, I remember my parents saying, well, you need to go to rehab. You know, that's the only way that you can come home. Because I remember my dad coming into my room and, you know, I had smoked weed and he said, you know, you're not, you're not going to smoke weed here. You're not going to live here and, and do that. And I said, weed is who I am. We, weed is part of who I am. This is, this is what I do. You know, and if you don't accept me after me, then I don't want to be here. So I ended up running away again for three days and then came back and I was like, okay, well, I got to go to rehab because it's winter. And, um, you know, that was the first time that I went, but it just shows, you know, how far down you can go in addiction and not even realize what's going on. Yeah, for sure. I'm going to get into a different question here, but I feel like there's a lot of uh, value in what you're even saying about the ADHD piece. And for listeners on this podcast, I have talked a little bit about my mental health story in different things. But uh, what some people may not know is that I actually was diagnosed at 21 with inattentive ADHD. So that's the one where you zone out more and you're less impulsive in some ways, although sometimes they can mix. And one of the things I realized was a blessing to me, and this is not, an, not at all to put down people who have struggled with this. This actually made me more empathetic for people who have struggled with this, is that a lot of times you're going after those things, like you said, weed probably made you feel calm. You know, those other things made you feel calm because you're actually trying to compensate for the chemical imbalances in your brain. So like for me, a lot of things that had to make me feel calm, I found that taking like different vitamin supplements would help or even doing workouts would help. And I think I was fortunate to at least have a bit of that structure in place in my life very early because <laughs> I had very strict parents. But when I read about the condition, I actually found out that in that risk category of that, and they said a lot of people who have this do this, some of them do drugs, some of them steal, um, some of them this, 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 it all depends on what the resources, what they have and what they're predispositioned uh, to. So that's why it's kind of, even that gave me a whole other perspective, like so many small moments in life 
could lead you in so many directions and it's not that one person is necessarily better than another. It's just, what are you exposed to? Like you said, how self-aware are you of what you're even processing and dealing with? And so on that note, you began to talk about your first time in rehab. What was then for you when you started to A, realize like, okay, this is really getting out of control. And then what were some of the incidences in your life with rehab where you felt like, you know what, I think I really want to break this. I think I really want to create something different in my life. Yeah, absolutely. So the first time that I went to rehab, I was just forced to be there. I didn't want to be there. After about two weeks, I started to experience feelings again. So it was about a year that I didn't have feelings. And after Sorry, starting- Sorry, if you don't mind saying, what do you mean by feelings? Like feelings. Like I, you sm- when you smoke weed like four times a day or five times a day, you don't have feelings. So if you start to go, like when you start to cleanse, um, like you do have feelings, but like just very, very minimal. Um, so it's like everything just tapers into like a really, yeah, sort of a gray kind of emotion. And um, when I started to get my feelings back, it was really, uh, really weird. Um, you know, I started, I, I punched the walls and like smashed the walls with my fist. And, uh, you know, I would, I would yell at the other, the other clients. And yeah, I was really angry. And I, I, I was really just wanting to understand what was going on, but I really couldn't. And I didn't feel that out of the programming itself, um, I took a lot at my age. Uh, the only thing I really remember was I don't want to smoke weed anymore. Like I want more with my life. I want to do more with my life. And that's what happened when I left the treatment center after going to detox for two weeks and then treatment for a month. So I was there for 45 days. I remember leaving. And when I was leaving, I was crying because I felt like safe there. Um, like I felt like there was a home in rehab because I had built relationships and friendships based off of something where we were actually like healing and we were trying to do better and we were trying to move forward. And I, I didn't feel like the outside world was necessarily a safe place. For me. And leaving the rehab for the first time was really difficult. Yeah, very interesting. I also think it's interesting that you bring up weed because a lot of people would argue that's not an addictive drug, but it's really interesting that in from what you're saying for you, it was like a very real one. So I guess maybe that varies with individuals as well. And that's a very, um, yeah, it's just an interesting point you brought up. So the first time you went, you came out of rehab, you realized that was a safe place because they let you kind of process. Was that the beginning of your recovery? No, I didn't. It didn't sink in that I can't do drugs anymore. I can't drink anymore. It was just something that, okay, I want to stop because it's really hurting me. And it's, you know, I want to do more with my life. And really I was doing nothing. I was accomplishing nothing. But within three months, uh, you know, I was back to drinking heavily. So that's when I started really getting into drinking. Uh, So the weed kind of was not what I was into as much anymore, but I started drinking very heavily. So I started drinking four or five nights a week. Uh, going through uh, high school. So after this whole incident, I got kicked out of St. Joe's and I had to go to a special program called farm school. Uh, So you basically get a bus, you go to the school, they take away your cell phones. There's like 10, 12 students for four teachers and you take four classes and everything got really good. Like my grades really, really improved because I wasn't high all the time. You know, I was, I was never stupid. I just never really applied myself in school. I had other priorities, obviously, with the drugs and the drinking. And yeah, so I ended up going to the special program. When I returned to St. Joe's, that's when I really started getting into the drinking heavily. So this was grade 12, and I had to go to an extra semester. So sometimes I joke, I had to go to grade 13. And yeah, that was a whole other experience there. So by the time I had gone through school, 
uh, and graduated, I was drinking quite heavily and, uh, you know, frequently, you know, struggling in all of areas of life. But I had become very, uh, like very narcissistic at this point, um, because I had success in like the world's eyes in terms of like, I had started my own business while going through high school. And I was doing well, and I was being mentored by, you know, really solid people. And, you know, after high school, I got right into car sales. And, you know, I immediately was performing very well at that. And, you know, then I started working with BMO as a, as a sales trainer. And, you know, I, I broke a record for selling, you know, the most credit cards in a day. So a lot of that, like, went straight to my head. Because, like, when you're insecure and you're not comfortable, like, really with who you are, you lose yourself in a lot of what you do or what people can see. So that's what it became like for me. And that, that's where I was getting those needs met in terms of, you know, when I was younger, I never felt like I was enough. But now it's like, well, look what I can do and look what I've done. Um, so that really spiraled as well and created a bit of like a denial in me in the sense that like, hey, man, like you're drinking all the time. You're doing drugs all of the time in your personal life. But I would justify it with my professional life. And eventually, though, that that catches up with you. Like I, I tell people now, like if you don't deal with your pain, your pain is going to deal with you right? Like you can have professional skill, but if you don't have the character required to actually hold that, um, you know, over a certain period of time, you're, it's going to fall apart, right? Like the, the fuller the cup of success, the steadier the hand to hold it. And I was very unsteady emotionally, mentally, spiritually. I didn't have a spiritual relationship uh, with God. And yeah, I was, I was on a track. I was on a track to disaster and that's where it ultimately led. Yeah. And thank you for bringing that up too. A lot of people are actually very successful and those are actually the harder ones to really know if anything's going on and not to say that anyone else isn't at risk, but I find that that's almost more risky for individuals who are so good at, like you said, surface level performing in life that no one can tell anything's wrong on, until it's too late. Those are the ones I actually feel the most worry for in some ways, just because again, without accountability, no one can really know what's happening. And then so from there, like you said, you're having your success in your job, but you're still having these struggles, then what was like, I guess, the major turning point for you where you're like, okay, I, I really have to deal with this now. And, and then how did that then develop into step one ministry? Yeah, for sure. So around so 18 to 20, I was sort of in that limbo state where it's like my addiction wasn't raging out of control. I was keeping my personal life or sorry, my professional life together. Uh, I was doing an incredible amount of like personal development for business, um, you know, reading over 150 books just on different ways of relating and people skills and leadership and, you know, all different sort of areas. But none of it really touched my soul like God touched my soul. You know, none of it really transformed me from the inside out. It was a lot of head knowledge. And like sometimes they say like your gifts can take you farther than like your character. You know, like if you have talent and, uh, you know, but you're not really the person that can actually, you know, maintain that. Right. So I'm repeating myself, but it's just an important point because, you know, eventually I got to a certain level of success where it all went to my head. But like eventually with the team, right? So the team started getting credit. So people on my team were starting to be successful. People on my team um, that I was mentoring were starting to get more attention than me. And I was so um, prideful and I was so insecure that I couldn't handle it, right? I was like, no, no, I was the one who I'm, you know? So then I started trying to change dynamics and you started to try and change structures to keep things about me, right? And, and if you're a me leader, then you, you have a problem right? Like now I understand that it's all we, you know, and it's, it's not about me whatsoever. It's all about giving credit where credit's due. And, you know, with, with step one, obviously like it's a team effort. Like if, if it was all about me, we'd be completely hooped. 
you know, 100%. Like I have a great team and that's why we're having the success that we're having. But in the past, I wouldn't have been able to handle that because I wasn't humble. So that's kind of what ended up happening. But when I, when that started to deteriorate businesses that I had um, because of myself and my own self-centeredness, I ended up going back to the only thing that I really knew for a sense of like family and connection, uh, which was drinking and drugs in that scene. So around 20 is when I really started getting back into that scene heavily. But a lot of people's addictions had evolved. So, you know, instead, instead of weed now, right, instead of drinking now, you know, it's cocaine, it's MDMA, right? So it's a lot harder drugs, you know, it's a lot more active lifestyle. And I was, you know, able to kind of keep it together. Somehow, I think a lot of it was positive mental attitude stuff that I learned while building my business. So I was and the work ethic. So like, I could I could stay up all night, like till five or six in the morning, sleep for two hours and show up and sell diamond, right? Because at that point, I was selling diamond. And, um, you know, I could do that. I could do that. And it wasn't a big deal. But eventually that catches up with you right? You know, eventually your mental health starts to deteriorate again, right? I stopped doing the internal work. I stopped doing the, you know, the personal development, you know, I, I still didn't have a relationship with God. So my spiritual life, um, you know, behind the scenes was always, always a struggle, uh, you know, in my personal life throughout the whole story, you know, so that's eventually led to the point where I was very, very depressed. You know, I was very, very depressed. I was, you know, I was sick of living it, the self-pity, you know, why me, you know, why is it like this? I really don't understand. So that's when I made like the decision, like Mark made the decision with ownership that I'm going to rehab. Like I got to sort this out. I know I was born for this. I know I have a lot of potential. It's time to, to move things along. So at 22, that's when I went to rehab for the second time. I went to Waccamo for two weeks, just a detox center. And out of that, I, I took recovery really seriously. You know, for about seven months, I started going to the 12-step group. Uh, that's when I started to have a relationship with a higher power. I didn't understand that, like, the true higher power is Christ, um, you know, and Jesus and what he accomplished on, on the cross. At that point, I just uh, understood that I was relating with something that was loving and that wanted me to move forward. And that relationship gave me a sense of security and, you know, encouraged me to move forward. But after about seven months, you know, I'd relapsed again. And um, it was really, really challenging for about three months. I drove out to Kelowna, you know, I, I, I gambled there like a lot of money. Um, you know, in that seven months, I was a manager at a car dealership. So I had a lot of money saved up, burned through all of that. Like I took out my TFSAs, my RSPs, just burned through that, um, you know, doing hard drugs. And yeah, after about three months of that, I needed to go back to rehab again, because I knew, you know, I didn't want to go down that drug path. I knew where it led. Um, and I was just becoming more attuned with the fact that that's not the life I wanted to live. But I hadn't figured out exactly how to really uh, get away with that, uh, get clean yet. So you mentioned for you, like that faith epiphany was actually when you started, it was a higher power. But then for you, when you made that faith epiphany and like you said finding christ you said that was really like kind of like a big turning point for you so then yeah you said you had to kind of go back get it sorted and then when from there were you like okay you know i'm kind of yeah i'm on a good track right now now i think i also want to start something like step one ministries because there are a few like you said rehab programs and things already existent. Why was it important for you once you felt like you got kind of back on track to start something of your own? And what were you hoping that would be unique about it in its offering? Yeah, absolutely. For sure. Yeah. So after I relapsed and then I relapsed again, went to rehab again, relapsed again, went to rehab again. The fourth time that I went to rehab a week before, I had a friend who, you know, said, you should come to church with me. And I was desperate, very, very desperate. And I was willing to try anything. So I said, okay, yeah, I'll, I'll come to church. And 
when I went there, it was really a uh, culture shock for me because I never really practiced receiving love. I never really understood like the level of gratitude and faith and just the whole mindset. But I had done enough personal development in the past that like I knew that if you want to have what people have, you have to know how they think. You have to get around them. You have to associate yourself with them and, and, and really immerse yourself in the culture and the ideology that they subscribe to. At this point, that's how I saw Christianity in the Bible. I saw it as psychology. Like I saw it as an ideology that like resulted in a certain feelings and certain emotions. Um, so I gave my life to Christ, you know, and went on a week bender after that, stayed up seven days straight. Then I was in rehab. And uh, that was the first time that I really started reading the Bible. And, you know, that that last year here, so that's 2020, I was just saved, saved December 29th, 2019. And the last year here has just been like radical transformation. So I started to understand that the Bible is, is, is a transcendent book that actually moves your spirit, something that was endowed into you by your creator. And if you live from that spiritual place, like you can, you, you will, you will manifest love, you will manifest joy, you will manifest peace but it's really putting that kingdom first and seeking him, you know, for, for that relationship and really living for him and allowing him to live through you. So yeah, he really did like a radical, radical work in my heart. I started to understand, you know, my past, why I was the way that I was. I started to change the way that I processed information. You know, I started to really develop discipline and self-control. I started to manifest the fruits of the spirit. Um, you know, not because I'm anything, anything special. I was just willing to do the work, right. I was willing to continue to read the Bible every day, to pray every day, you know, to get mentorship from my pastors, to, to go to a Christian psychologist, um, you know, and then for step one, what ended up kind of happening was I just kind of started feeling like something in my heart, like knowing that, hey, I went to rehab four times and I never really got the the knowledge and like the clear trajectory of like, how are you going to actually live life? Like, how are you going to get beyond uh, and do more with your life and actually recover? And like, we believe in full redemption at step one. So it's not about staying clean. It's about fulfilling your potential, right? Because it's a lot of the times it's, you know, it's not the fact that you did drugs, it's why you did the drugs. So if you can fix that, you know, then you're going to be able to live in that God-given identity and walk in that power and walk in that Christ-likeness. Uh, so with, with that, I, you know, I had a, three different conversations that really instigated step one. One was with uh, Brian Fuller, who used to be the president of Eston Bible College. And he said, like, what's really in your heart? Like, what do you really want to do? And I said, I want to I help people. You know, I want to set the captives free. I know what it's like to be in bondage in every single way. I was very suicidal before the last time uh, I went to rehab. Uh, so that was one conversation that really, like, really clarified who I wanted to be and what I wanted to do. My other friend, one of my business mentors uh, in e-commerce, he said to me essentially that, you know, a lot of people talk about doing stuff like that, Mark, but not a lot of people actually do it. So don't be one of those people. And that really hit home with me as well. And then stand from straight up an organization that helps gang members get off of the street. I sat down with him and he said, well, where's your program? You know, where, where's your program? You know, you're saying things, but what are you actually done? So at that point, I decided to start step one. Um, and that's when, you know, I started writing. I already started writing programming, just everything that I had learned through all of my personal development, my relationship with Christ my different mentorship organizations, you know, I put together like an, a, a first board where we started really working on that. And I really infused all of my passions into step one. So there's the three components. There's the social services uh, where we're developing a treatment center. Uh, the program's going to be at its first review by our professional team of volunteers. So Christian psychologists, uh, different leadership, people that are in the community, motivational coaches, uh, addicts in recovery. Uh, th then there's the, the clothing component or the entrepreneurial component. So we just did our bulk clothing order. We got 88, 88 pieces of clothing in. Uh, most of them are sold already. Um, but we, we know all of the proceeds go towards the treatment center and are reinve reinvested back into step one. 
uh, so that we can touch more people and we can build more awareness for the problems out there. Uh, you can order that through the website at www.step1ministries.ca. And one is like O-N-E, not like the number. So you can go on there and you can learn more about Step 1 Ministries there as well. You can reach out to us. There's phenomenal volunteer opportunities where you'd be able to give back to the community, add value to people, take an addict under your wing. Um, so we're really, really excited about that. We have different training videos that we're doing and putting together for people. Uh, we really have a large focus on empowering people and you know helping them move forward in, in their own career and their own development. Um, so it's about how we can add value. You know, we're looking to add value to other organizations. So through strategic alliances or sponsorships, you know, we're not just a charity where we want to take, you know, we have a lot of different skills that we can add value to your organization. And that's what we want to do. And then we have the music label component as well. So we're developing music. You can check us out on Spotify, Step One Mingle Out called Wounded Warrior. Uh, me and Angel Mack, uh, you know, did that together. And it's a story about, you know, essentially the reality of addiction sometimes when you want so badly to do more. And in your own power, you've come to the end of your rope. We have another song coming out actually today at 2.30. I'm going to be in the studio. A song called Precipice. Talks about like when you're kind of at the face of your potential and you can see it, you can taste it and you can either take it or, you, or you're going to be left to face the reality of regret. Uh, so those are some of the things that are going on right now with step one. We visited Rock Solid Refuge. They were putting a, a lot of different like structures and stuff in place as well. So we're very, very excited to add value to the community and just to help people recover, transform from the inside out. So, yeah. Yeah, that's incredible. Uh, it sounds like a very um, amazing project because you have the actual programming, like you said, you have the branding and congrats on selling all of that already because it's a huge undertaking to actually run and fund a nonprofit. And then the music part, uh, that, that part seems unique as well. So there seems to be a bit of like a music ministry component and, and reaching people through that. So I, I guess a little bit all along those lines is how did you, from uh, entrepreneur perspective, because I know a lot of entrepreneurs also listen to this podcast, how did you make those connections to sell like the merch so quickly, to get the sponsors so quickly? Were, were any of those even through your business dealings in the past or is it kind of the same uh, strategies you have for networking that you then brought into this ministry that you launched? Yeah, that's a that's a great question and, and a loaded one. Um, so the way that we sort of implemented the boards was off the concept of decentralized command and extreme ownership. So like Jocko Wilnick and Leif Babin. So a lot of the structure of step one is designed that way. So we operate with multiple boards with shared goals. So Chad's an executive director and he runs a board and then I'm running a board as well. So that way, um, you know, we can accomplish a lot more in a shorter period of time. Uh, we were just very strategic, um, you know, about our branding. We were very strategic about our marketing. Uh, you know, we're, 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 of course, we have a ministry heart, but we're, we're business minded and we're, we're very entrepreneurial. Um, in terms of networking and, you know, making connections, we're just really looking to add value to people, right? Like we're really looking to see how can we help you? How can we add value to you? And, you know, that really speaks, I think, to the true heart that step one has, um, you know, a lot of the times with different mindsets, you know, lots of it's about taking and what we can get, but we really want to give to others. And through that, I believe that, you know, God's going to bless us and take care of us, you know, so like different, um, you know, organizations that I've talked to, you know, it's not just about <laughs> Mark and, you know, it's, it's about them. So I think that's a huge, a huge thing. Um, and, like, and like actual details and, and like marketing. Um, I mean, like you, you really have to be smart about, you know, networking with people and, and building value, right? Like we're not selling clothes. 
we're selling a vision. You know, we're not, we're not selling music. We're selling transforming people from the inside out, right? Like you're not supporting, you know, step one, you're supporting a guy's depression, you know, who's suicidal, who needs help, right? And the more that people can understand that, the more that they're actually willing to kind of buy in. And then also just like continuous, um, like the team is just really self-motivated. Like the team itself with the concept of extreme ownership, like I'm not above rebuke. Like I'm not the, le- I'm not the, like I'm the, I'm the face maybe, but it's, it's not even about me as the face, right? Like if I'm trying to sell Mark Blaine, instead of trying to sell a service or what we're actually doing, like if you remove me from the equation, step one would be successful because the team is great because the team is champions, because the team thinks like a leader, right? And it's, it's about building each other up internally, um, but applying those values, um, you know, of like humility and integrity and character and, you know, all of those different aspects that make Christianity and their relationship with Christ so special. We want to shine that out to the world. We want to exemplify that, right? And Christ talked about, you know, if you want to be first, you know, be last, right? Like, if, you know, he washed, he washed the, feet, the feet of the disciples, and, you know, as, as much as, you know, like my title is CEO, I really do think of myself as a servant leader. You know, I really do think of myself as how can I get other people to be better? How can I improve them? Because a real measure of a leader is the leaders he brings on behind him, you know, and, 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 and it's not me that did it, right? Like it's Christ and it's the Holy Spirit. But the leaders that I have bring, that are coming on behind me are all phenomenal. They're all amazing, right? And they're going to be ready to take on their own boards, you know, in terms of decentralized command. So that's how we're able to expand so aggressively and so quickly because we have structures in place that allow that, right? It's not about me controlling people or constricting people. It's about allowing them to thrive to their potential. Like you see so many insecure leaders that want to hold people down and keep them down because it's about my authority and my position. But a positional based leader, like John Maxwell talks about, like, it's not like that's a level one leader, right? You know, I want to be like a level two or a level four leader, like people, people behind behind me are producing results, you know, so you want to get to that pinnacle level of leadership. And you don't get that through words, you get that through examples, like the best sermons are walked, not talked, right? Like, I, I'm not really telling people what to do. I'm showing them what to do. I also want to talk about even the music component because I got a chance to hear that track as well. Uh, it was spoken word. It was really, really good. And I was thinking to myself, was music even something you always had a talent in? And also, given the type of sound that it is, are you also trying to, I guess, attract youth who are in need to this program? Because I could see a lot of youth really resonating, you know, obviously with the hip hop, the spoken word, um, that style of music. So was that actually part of the, I guess, mindset behind those types of tracks? Yeah, great question. So like with the with the music, like we're looking to actually allow artists to have a voice under a label where someone's going to take care of the business end of it, right? So like a lot of like 16 year olds, like I'm working with a couple 16 year olds right now, actually, because I, I do have a heart for the youth. I really do. And I see a lot of potential in them and their generational thought is a lot different. Uh, they're a lot more entrepreneurial. They're a lot more open-minded, whereas a lot of people are kind of locked into their thinking in the older generation and that that's fine that's neither here nor there but with with my heart being there these these youth are writing songs you know but they don't have somebody who can say listen like here's how you can monetize that right and like here's how your music can be part of something bigger than yourself um so like me personally i was always interested in music and i always did write but i never took it seriously like thinking of myself as an artist uh, thinking of myself as somebody that people would you know really want to get behind and listen but a lot of it too, it has to do with like, you're not just like music is, is great, but it's also people are buying into you as an artist, right? So it's like with, with step one, they're not necessarily just supporting Wounded Warrior. 
but they're actually supporting people who are in recovery. Like they're helping, they're supporting people who are addicts who are trying to move their lives forward. Uh, and with, with the youth, yeah, absolutely. Like one of the guys, I was actually at the gym and I just felt the spirits leading to talk to him. I said, Hey man, like, how's it going today or whatever. And he's like, I was praying last night for an opportunity. Right. And he's an artist and he's really interested in branding and marketing. So I gave him an opportunity. Hey, like sell these step one sweaters. And we'll also allow you to make a song with the label. And I have another, another friend of mine that I'm mentoring actually, and his, his parents are sponsors. Uh, and they own a construction company. His mom's actually the accountant and the auditor for step one. Uh, she does that kind of volunteer. And, you know, he's an artist as well. So I'm giving him an outlet, right? Because I believe that that creative potential really has an opportunity to touch people on a deep level. I was talking to Greg Denny at uh, Legacy One, and he's saying, well, you know, you can do a 30 minute sermon or you can do a four minute song with the same amount of punch, right? So that's the idea behind the music is I can say a lot in a lot less time. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, love Legacy One. Yeah, they're they're awesome. So I'm, <laughs> I'm glad to hear you're connected with them. A great couple and great ministry and, and their team is awesome as well. Yeah, so I, I wanted to ask you, given that you have such a big vision for this organization, where do you see it in the next, you know, in your mind in the next five years? What would be an amazing feat for this group and this team and your efforts all together. Yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, we're going to have the treatment center in Saskatoon within 2021. The next treatment center from there will be in New Brunswick. So we have a lot of contacts in New Brunswick through Jerry Love, the director of marketing. So we have a lot of support out there, like a lot of clothes are being shipped out there. I'm in touch with a few of the CEOs from different ministries out there. And they're great. They're amazing people, you know, and they have the same problem, right? Like with COVID going on, um, you know, the rise of mental health and addictions and relapses is, is scary. It's terrifying. And we need programs that really work and really also meet people where they're at. And step one, it's a, you know, step one, meeting them where they're at. Um, you know, and helping them move forward. So that, that's for sure. We'll have one out in New Brunswick will be the second one. And then from there, once like the program moves from like more of like a theoretic intuitive to an evidence-based program, then it'll be a lot easier to scale. And the way that we're actually operating like on decentralized command, like I can just hire in an executive director in Alberta, they can put together a team of four and then I'm tracking everything. So like every board meeting I've had, I have notes what we did, you know, every different structure that we're using, every different process, every different method, every different strategy, it's all recorded and documented. So I can basically just be like, here's how we did it. And then I can mentor them along the way in terms of like the, uh, I guess, like the gray areas of leadership, um, you know, and how to have that team dynamic. Yeah. And I mean, like, I mean, I kind of talked about it a little bit, but also the five dysfunctions of a team, right? Like that's the other big area that like people need to understand is like your team needs to be able to speak their mind you know like if, if you're if you're walking on eggshells in an executive team that's a problem right like that's the that's the first foundation is lack of trust which will manifest into invulnerability which will manifest into a lack of commitment right and then it'll be ambiguity you know it'll be like oh yeah we'll do that but they're not really buying in you know people aren't really part of the vision it's your vision and they're helping you no it's our vision and we're doing it together right there's a huge difference in that mindset and in the performance that your team will have, if you're making it about you, um, you know, and then if that's not going, if that's not, you know, functioning properly, um, you know, you're going to run into a lot of, a lot of problems and, you know, building a successful team, it's simple, but it's very difficult because it requires to do those vulnerable things and like to speak our minds. And, uh, you know, sometimes I'm just wrong and my team needs to be able to call me on that. You know, sometimes I just have a bad idea. Like I'm very visionary, but I'm, so I need integrators. You know, I need people who are going to be like, yeah, Mark, that's awesome. But like, come on, man, look at this. Right. And then it's like, you're right. But if I was, you know, anyways, I, I could go off about that 
for for a while. I love I love that sort of stuff. I love reading about that. I love learning about it and uh, implementing it is really really fun as well. Leadership's a, a big topic, and yeah, very excited to see um, those treatment centers come up. And as you mentioned, you're right. There's a whole other layer with COVID, and I am sure. There's a huge need for even more of those right now. Before we wrap up, I just wanted to give a chance for you to let our audience know how can we best support you and what's an immediate upcoming project that you have right now? Yeah, absolutely. I think the the biggest thing would be volunteers. So we have made some training videos where it outlines eight key areas of growth moving forward for step one. And if someone has extra time, um, you know, that they're willing to work from home, um, you know, or they're, they're wanting to get in touch, uh, then they can definitely reach out to us through the website. Uh, you can also reach out to me on, on Facebook is a good way. I, I work from there a lot. It's uh, Mark with a C and then Blaine with no E. You can look me up on there. I'd love to talk to you and get to know you better and build a relationship with you. But it's also like how we can help you. You know, like I, I know I've said that a lot, but it's like I, I want to mentor people. You know, I want to see people fulfill their potential. That's where my heart is, you know, and that, that's what I want to see. The big thing moving forward right now is, you know, having those sponsors on recurring support. Uh, so we have a few, but it's not cheap. So we want to have a three-month bankroll, uh, which is $180,000. It's cost about $60,000 a month to run the program. Uh, and with that $180,000, that'll give us the cushion. We're going to open the center for 90 days, and we're going to let 10 clients in. Then we're going to evaluate everything that happens. We're going to shut down for two weeks, and then we're going to adjust and adapt. Because uh, you need to constantly be, be evolving with this, you know, like the drug world is constantly evolving. Treatment should be constantly evolving, you know, and then so that that's the big, big area right now. Big, big projects that we have going on, you know, is just is just that we're, we're putting it together. Like we're really making this happen. So there's tons of stuff that's going on all the time. There's tons of needs that are going on all the time. And we, we would love to connect with you and love to talk with you and build a friendship with you. Because uh, that's one of the cardinal rules too. We have so we have cardinal rules that outline the executive team, and then we have core values. So you can see that on the website as well. But one of them is you know that we put our friendships before our business, right? So it's like we don't want to just you. We want you to be part of a family at step one. Like everyone should be involved in a ministry. Everyone should be wanting to serve. Everyone should be wanting to give back. But how many people put that structure in place for people to serve? in a way that accommodates them and grows them, right? Like everyone should have some sort of affiliation with a social service, in my opinion, right? I mean, I get life is busy and, you know, everyone has their different things, but we want to be a family at step one too, something that you can be a part of for the next 50 years of your life and like really feel bought into. Uh, we also, of course, do like newsletters and everything where we'll keep you updated. Um, you know, you'll know what's going on, what our needs are on a regular basis. So that way you can interact with your network or interact with whoever you know and connect us with who we need to be connected to. And we'd love to connect you with whoever we can connect you with as well to advance, you know, your podcast or to advance your YouTube channel or to advance your vision. You know, like I'm talking to a few different people who are starting ministries right now and they're asking me, you know, how did you do it? And it's like, man, I love to serve. We're all one body. We're all in this for the kingdom. It's all for Christ. It's not about step one. It's not about Mark Blaine. It's about Christ. It's about the kingdom. I love it. And thank you so much for sharing so much value with our audience today. Thank you for being vulnerable with your story. And thank you for also even talking about the practical aspects of making a nonprofit and launching something like this. So uh, thank you again for being on the Okiki podcast. We're so looking forward to the projects that you come up with. Uh, I'm sure the audience will be able to follow you and see uh, those things actually come to life in a very short time. So thank you again. Awesome. Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it.